I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast, you can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist, as Wellington Month continues in rapid fashion. You've had two podcasts already this week, and I'm spoiling you with a third, as I am joined by Martin Howard. Martin has written a brilliant book on Wellington and the British Army's India campaigns in 1798 to 1805, but he also has a much wider ranging interest. He's a former hospital consultant and an honorary visiting professor at the University of York, but has a long-standing interest in the 18th and 19th century and particularly warfare during that period, with a particular focus on the human dimension of those conflicts and also the lesser known campaigns. So in that respect, very much a man after my own heart. His most recent books include Volker in 1809, The Scandalous Destruction of the British Army, Death Before Glory, The British Soldier in the West Indies, uh, which I have and is high on my list uh, to read at the moment, and of course the one that I've just mentioned on Wellington and the British Army's India campaigns. Martin, lovely to see you. Welcome to the Napoleonicist for the first time. How are you? I'm very well, uh, Zach. Many, many thanks for the invite. Now, I've opened with this question for pretty much everybody who's participated in Wellington Month. So I'm not going to break tradition today, I'm afraid. What's your opinion of the man himself? Yeah, I think uh, this is probably the most difficult question you're going to ask me, isn't it? It's virtually impossible to come up with anything original. Um, I mean, as a precursor, I, I would say, particularly for us Brits, it's very, very difficult to get past some sort of 
stereotypical uh, version of, of, of Wellington or Arthur Wellesley as he was during his Indian period. Um, I think we have this sort of received rather formulaic wisdom of him that's almost in our DNA uh, as this man who was profoundly successful at winning battles, but ultimately um, was not a likable figure in many ways. Um, a man who sort of, in the modern parlance, lacked emotional intelligence. And I think it's quite a mental wrench, almost, to get when you've grown up with that, to get past it and to see him as a sort of three-dimensional, um, more complex figure. I mean, I've only really studied him for the Indian period, so I have to stress that. He arrived in India when he was 28, and he left in his mid-30s. He lived in 83. So, you know, this is a small part of his life. But I think you, if, you, if you look at the evidence, um, contemporary sources, his copious and quite brilliant dispatches uh, during the Indian years, you, you, you do start to see uh, quite a complex, multifaceted figure. Um, and again, I don't think anything I'm about to say is entirely original, but I, I think there are some certainties. I, I think although he appeared to be a little mediocre in his academic studies, when you read his dispatches, you, you start to understand that this was a man who was profoundly intelligent, um, razor-like uh, intellect, very uh, highly analytical mind who could drill down to a problem, find the solution, and was then able to communicate the solution to others. And, you know, these, these, he, he worked profoundly hard, you know. Um, <laughs> it was a nature of soldiering at this time that people worked long hours, but he, he you know, the dispatches are copious. Um, he was, I think, what we might now think of as some sort of control freak in many ways. He planned and planned and planned. In India, um, his dispatches are full, uh, of references to logistics um, of his army, of his supply, how to cross rivers, all the essentials in Indian warfare where you had to get your army to survive before you could march and win battles. So, yeah, he was this meticulous planner, this cautious man who left nothing to chance. And then when you move on to Assay, which was his great battle in the Deccan in 1803 against the Maratha forces, a battle that he won, he took the most outrageous risk. Um, I'm sure we may come back to a say, but just to develop the argument, I mean, he took a, an enormous risk uh, uh, that shocked himself, I think, he certainly shocked many of his comrades. He wasn't properly prepared. He had very poor intelligence. Um, he really didn't understand his opponent, their ability to maneuver or indeed to fight. He won the battle by brilliant generalship on the field, but he could easily have lost it. I think it was a very, very close then. And so you have this slightly conflicted view of a man on the one side as a bit of a control freak, you know, who controlled everything, who planned, who left nothing to chance, he even had discussions about individual camels and elephants and looking through his dispatches, but then took this incredible risk, which maybe was part of his ethos of Indian warfare, which was always to be on the front foot, but nevertheless seems somewhat at odds um, with the man who was planning, you know, who, who was micromanaging. And then I think when you move to his sort of deeper personality or wider personality, it's also conflicting, isn't it? I mean, he, he seems to be this aloof figure, but actually during his years in India, he had friends, people seemed to like him. He could have a laugh, 
um, how he made friends with men and women, uh, particularly the latter, I think. So he, he wasn't some sort of robot. He, he wasn't some sort of automaton. So we have the, you know, the, the, the man who planned endlessly but took risks and a man who you know, has developed this reputation of being cold and somewhat you know, removed from the masses. But I think certainly during his India years as a young officer, he was, he was quite a human figure. It's funny, that's exactly, a few guests have done this lately. You've said exactly what I was about to, to say, which is that we get a much more human picture from the description that you, you put forward there, which I really liked. And it's interesting, and we will come onto this in a, in a bit, that actually a lot of the kind of hallmarks, I, I think we would class them as, of Wellington's style of command are actually visible from his India campaigns. And that's, you know, something that we'll, we'll discuss probably right towards the end about kind of the influences. So folks can stay tuned for that. But it, it's really interesting that you pick out a number of uh, really important points there. It's probably one of the more eloquent descriptions that we've had of Wellington uh, so far this month. Thank you. Now, that's all right. I'm, I'm here to deliver compliments. <laughs> it may be downhill from here. No, no, not at all. I'm, I'm here to please. Um, so Wellington, Wesley, Wellesley, call him what you will, goes out to India, essentially unknown, let's be frank, as a Lieutenant Colonel of the 33rd. What type of environment does he go into as a British regular army officer tasked with fighting on the Indian subcontinent? I think, I think it's a physically alien environment. Um, I mean, obviously one shouldn't in any way try to diminish the, the, the campaign conditions in Europe. Um, I, I think there's some interesting contemporary accounts, and I think perhaps an oversimplification, but I think many soldiers felt that the average campaign in India carried equivalent hardships to a particularly difficult winter campaign in Europe. I think the difference was in Europe was conditions and hardship varied, but in India, you know, the extremes of climate, the difficult terrain, uh, meant that this was, was a very, very difficult environment in which a Euro for a European, and even a sepoy army, as the East Indian Army, uh, East India Company Army was, to wage a war. Um, I think for somebody in command, uh, as he was of a regiment and subsequently of a larger independent force in, in India, um, you know, there were, there were multiple challenges. Um, the roads were poor, um, you know, there were the monsoon rains, the extremes of heat, incredible extremes of heat. Um, the difficulties in supplying an army were profound. And I think one of the things that Wellesley very quickly learned about India was actually you couldn't wage a war without considerable support from the, from the local um, population. Um, this was not a war that, you know, where you could supply your army from a few widely scattered depots in the presidencies. You had to have the local warlords, the local villages, the local Banjara, the people who, you know, this itinerant uh, indigenous group who, 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 who um, supplied weed, salt, etc. You had to have the Harkara, the, um, the local Indian um, buyers and sellers of intelligence um, on your side. And only when you had you created this scenario where you had this very high level of local cooperation could you start to wage a war? And even then, you know, you were reliant on, on local communication. There was a very crude um, postal system, um, but, you know, it often malfunctioned. Um, the runners were sometimes eaten by tigers, apparently. 
um, you know, it was it was a it was um, a tenuous uh, hold of control. Um, so I think it was a phenomenally demanding environment and quite an isolated one. It took four months to send a letter from Bombay to London. It was even difficult to communicate between the south and the north. It was very difficult for Wellesley, who actually was in command in the south in the Deccan uh, in the Anglo-Maratha War, to even communicate with his commander-in-chief, Gerard Lake, who it must, mustn't be forgotten, uh, waged an equally possibly more important campaign in the north. So there were, there were multiple, um, multiple levels of, of complexity and challenge. It really, I think the bottom line was you have to work hard to survive before you could actually engage on a campaign and win a battle. That's fascinating. You know, riders being eaten by tigers. This isn't something that, for all the complexities of the Waterloo campaign, you know, that wasn't something that they had to contend with. So it's a very different, as you say, a very different environment that they've got to it, engage it, it with. It is. That sort of sticks in my mind. When you read that, it sticks in your mind. There's another very nice description, which I think, in a way, uh, summarises campaigning in India. William Thorne, who was an officer with Blake in the north, described, gives a long description of, a, of an elephant pulling a cannon out of quicksand. And I think that sort of you know, summarises the level of difficulty that the, the British East uh, European soldiers, but also the East India Company sepoy forces faced, uh, faced in the subcontinent. So what do we know about Wellesley as a commander of a regiment? Do we have any kind of insight into how he ran the unit and his attitudes towards keeping the rank and file in line? which we can then use to kind of extrapolate and work out his, his wider uh, kind of philosophy of command. Yeah, I think, I think Wellesley was not a great innovator, uh, certainly not in India, I can't, can't come up so much for later years. So I, I think he took a very traditionalist view to command at, at regimental level. Um, I mean, you could come at this from, from two, two angles, I suppose. You know, he had to maintain discipline to maintain discipline, you know, and if you read about his, his punishments that he issued out in the Indian dispatches, they're very traditional at the time, there's nothing surprising there. Um, he, he was very quick to administer brisk military justice, but then that was the way of the time. I don't think that tells us too much about him as an individual. He took great care of his, uh, of his regiment's health, and that's something I realize we may return, but he, he was very hot on military hygiene ensuring that, you know, that his, his troops had every possible chance of avoiding disease, even on, on the voyage out to India as a very junior officer, his regimental orders are full of stipulations about keeping water clean, about ventilation and so on. So I think he was a good military officer at regimental level. I think he enforced discipline in a very traditional manner, um, something I suspect you may know more about than I do that, but I don't think there's anything fundamentally different about his approach to that. And I think he joined many other officers at the time, many other good military officers, and he took care, care of his men. You know, he, he, he valued the, 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 the life and the well-being of his soldiers. At a regimental, and, and I think later at, a, at, a, at, a, at a sort of an army-wide level. Interesting, absolutely. So again, we can kind of see those early origins of what became fundamental in terms of his philosophy about looking after the men and kind of using them only when absolutely essential. Uh, and listeners will be relieved to hear that I won't uh, kind of dive into a diatribe about <laughs> crime and punishment during this period. Two hours on crime and punishment. <laughs> they're not here to listen to me, they're here to listen to you. So Wellesley is heavily involved in the siege of Sungri Patan. 
let's start with the failed night action outside the city one of a yeah. handful of incidents where things do go fairly badly wrong uh, for Wellesley what does fundamentally go wrong for him during this attack well I, I, I think yeah I mean just a little, little bit more background during the pattern this was in the sort of prelude part of the siege there was a ruined uh, uh, village on the outskirts of uh, Surinder Patton uh, called Sultan Petter. And it was, a, a, I think, there were a number of buildings. And then a, there was, a, forgive my pronunciation, a, a, a group of mango trees and grove and so on. Um, and it, it was important to drive the Mysorean troops out of this or that post. And the responsibility was given to, to, to Wellesley, leading uh, Commodore of the 33rd by Harris, who was the commanding officer of the uh, Surinder Patton expedition. Um, I think the interesting thing about Sultan Petter is really, you know, how much Wellesley was to blame because this night attack was a failure. And it's a question, I suppose, how much he was set, you know, he, he was set out to fail, if you like, by Harris and how much personal responsibility Wellesley should take for the failure. The night attack went wrong it was hardly surprising because night attacks nearly always went wrong. Um, you know, Harris later noted in his journal ruefully that night attacks always go wrong, which begs the question why he ordered it. A night attack only a few nights earlier had gone wrong. Um, the detail is obscure because the attack was, was difficult to regiment. Uh, Wellesley went forward with a number of companies, I think it was five companies of the 33rd, some of the troops. Initially, it went well. It soon became chaotic in the dark. Uh, a number of men were wounded, one or two were killed. Wellesley came back, lost contact with his force, clearly in some state of distress, or as probably exaggerated by some contemporary accounts. Wellesley had his enemies in the, in the, in the officer ranks. Um, some of them said he came back like a madman tearing his hair out. But he, in, in Harris's account, which is probably more reliable, he simply says Wellesley was sad to have failed. Um, there are two sort of, I think people have looked at the Salt and Petter episode in two ways. Uh, one view, uh, and that this was sort of the view taken by Wellesley's enemies in the ranks, if you like, is it was an example of nepotism at play. And here was a, an officer who had made a mess of something, but because his older brother, Richard Wellesley, was Governor General of India, it was whitewashed, you know, so he got away with it. Whereas if the implication, the inference was that, um, you know, if, he, if Arthur Wellesley hadn't been Richard Wellesley's younger brother, this would have been serious for him, possibly the end of his uh, military career. The other view taken, which is supported by Rory Muir, which you so wouldn't like to disagree, is actually that Sultan, the Sultan Petter night attack debacle has only really got into the history books because it was Wellesley. You know, it was a it was a failed night attack, but they were commonplace, and it, it was a very very small punctuation mark in the siege of Seringa Patton. It wouldn't have otherwise attracted much attention at all, and it was only Wellesley's subsequent fame and notoriety that makes it significant. And I think you, know, you have to, well, not least because that's what Rory Muir thinks, you have to buy into that. <laughs> it was his brilliant biography in part inspired me to write the book on India I think so I, I think it's probably the latter version of events it was a, a disappointment for Wednesday but a very small part of his overall military career I really like that you you brought up Rory because I mean you were a brave individual 
to, to take on anything associated with Wellington yes, indeed. in the wake of that. <laughs> well, I assumed I was going to do it worse than him, so I just I didn't put too much pressure on myself. <laughs> well, I, I, I disagree. I think you do a, an incredible job. I love the book. You wouldn't be on here if I didn't think it was oh, a thanks, great Zach. read. Yeah. Um, it's, and... I mean, still, I, just going back to, don't want to get off, but yeah, the reason I wrote the book is that most, actually, most accounts of Wellesley in India are as part of Balgrave, is that? So, you know, so I think, um, so an old biographies have the disadvantage, they focus on one individual. So, you know, you can't focus on Lake's campaigns in the North and so on. So I think that's why I wrote a book on India. Um, but yeah, I digress, sorry. No, not, not at all. Let's talk about what happens after the siege. So it's gonna come as no great spoiler to folks that the British take uh, the, take Seringapatam. The Tipu Sultan is killed in the midst of the fighting. And then comes the task of appointing a governor of Seringapatam, which is given to Wellesley. But there are two in, in the running for that, the other person being Sir David Baird. Do you think the selection of Wellesley was, as you kind of alluded to in, in terms of wider discussions, a political move in the sense that his brother is um, out there as governor general of India? Or is it actually the, just the shrewder diplomatic choice because Baird has his, his issues with the local population following his imprisonment? Yes, I'm, I'm not sure you know, whether Harris had any communication with, with the Governor General as to the choice of um, uh, the Governor of Stringer Patton. It was, it's, on the super, superficial, it's Harris's choice. Uh, Baird was very upset. I think the sequence of events, as I understand it, was that the original intent was to give Baird the governorship of Stringer Patton. Baird played a very prominent and exceptionally brave role in the storming of Stringer Patton. He's far more involved in natural fighting than, than Wellesley. And I think uh, after the fighting, Baird was exhausted, took a step back. Um, but I think it was still his expectation in the longer term he would be made governor of Stringer Patton. Um, he complained that he'd been superseded by a junior officer. Uh, inverted commas, before the sweat was dry on my brow. So this was a man who felt he'd been usurped by somebody junior to him. I, I suspect it was just convenient for Harris because, you know, Baird was a brilliant um, soldier, but a bit of a hothead. And uh, there was a great deal of, of disruption in Syringa Patton after the fall of the siege, as there always was after the siege, which looting, pillaging, all sorts of uh, misbehaviour. And I think pr probably... Um, Harris uh, took the opportunity to put the more um, cerebral, methodical Wellesley in charge rather than the more impetuous Baird. He probably saw that, that, that Wellesley was the man to, to suppress uh, the dissent and, and create order and stuff in the pattern. And he wasn't wrong. I mean, you know, Wellesley was a very competent governor, as you might expect. Absolutely. I, I'm interested to talk about Wellesley himself during this period and particularly his health which you touched on earlier in terms of yeah. the, the 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 just the nature of the subcontinent i mean it's, it was known as was the caribbean as a kind of a graveyard for europeans due to disease there were plenty who went out to india not really bothering about whether or not they could afford the return voyage home because there was that question mark about you know you can go out there and perhaps you'll make it you'll strike it rich yeah. but there's a good chance that you won't and you won't need to come back. Um, and, and if you somehow survive, well, then you're marooned out there unless you can make your money. But to go back to the, the health issue, am I right in recalling that 
Wellesley ends up with something called the Malabar itch. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just to turn in, because you, you just to, before we discuss Wellesley, just to, to support your point, Zach, that uh, India wasn't the pestilential West Indies, but I just quote a, a number at them because you can't really get past the numbers when it comes to uh, medicine and losses from disease in, in these heartland uh, uh, campaigns. Of 350 officers in the Bengal army who were promoted to lieutenant colonel. So we're just looking at very senior army officers, people like Wellesley, which is why I quote the number, by 1820. So around this sort of period, 40% died in India, elsewhere in the East or in transit. Only three were known to be killed in action. So the enormous number of deaths were from disease. So, you know, you only had about a one in two chance of ever getting back home. Even in India, in West Indies, it would have been much less. So, you, 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 you have, I mean, Wellesley sometimes quoted in Wellington as being a lucky general. You had to be lucky to survive the posting in the West Indies or India. You know, you wouldn't get your water if you die of dysentery in some, you know, godforsaken sort of small camp somewhere. Um, yet he did have the Malabar itch. It's like all of history, isn't it? It's like the 1066 and all that version. People only remember the Malabar, the Malabar itch because it's the only memorable thing. He, uh, the Malabar itch um, uh, is a generic term for a number of skin fungal diseases. It wasn't ever likely to be fatal to Wellesley, but it was no doubt very unpleasant and debilitating. Um, he also had a lot of lumbago back pain and rheumatism, which was commonplace. So they were two of his sort of medical problems, but they're never going to sort of threaten his, his life. He had two episodes of disease that I think could have been fatal. One which he rather plays down was in, I think in 1798 at Madras, I maybe got the year wrong, where he had an episode of dysentery which he mentions in his um, uh, dispatches. He, he blames it on, on a poor water supply. Uh, as I say, he doesn't make a great fuss of it. He seems to have recovered, but 15 men of the 33rd died of it. So he could have died of dysentery. He didn't. It maybe he was favoured by being a senior officer, better nutrition and so on. Wouldn't have particularly related to the medical care. And then most significantly, he, he developed an intermittent fever in his early years in India, which was almost certainly a, a milder form of malaria. Um, and it, it waxed and waned, which would have fitted very well with malaria. And it gradually debilitated him. And I think it, his health actually was a significant, I don't think it's the only factor, but a significant factor in his return to England um, in 1805, he wrote to John Malcolm, one of his friends in India um, from St. Helena on the return journey, um, saying that he was becoming very feeble and he really was starting to worry for himself. You know, it's a letter that expresses a real concern that if he hadn't got out of India at that time, maybe he wasn't going to. So I think although there were, you know, political, military, social reasons for Wallace's return to England, I think his poor health was, was, was definitely part of it. For you as a, a medical man, you you have a better insight into the the complexities of medicine and the challenges during this period than certainly somebody like me. So what kind of treatments are they using for things like dysentery and for malaria? And on a medical level, to what extent do they just kind of get in the way and actually hinder the healing process or have no impact at all? Yeah, I mean, the common diseases in India were, were fevers, which the majority... 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, uh, malaria, probably related, but an endless sort of list of other infectious disorders. Liver disorders like hepatitis, which you know, probably also excess alcohol consumption. And dysentery. Um, dysentery is a very uninteresting subject, but dysentery is actually the commonest cause of death in many wars. It was the commonest cause of death in the British Army in the Peninsular War. Um, so these were the common diseases, but of course they were misunderstood. This was many. This was you know a long time before the science of microbiology and the the understanding of insect vectors and how disease was transmitted. There were a few doctors who understood that, that diseases might be contagious, but most army doctors in India and elsewhere had these sort of miasmatic views of diseases. They thought diseases came from these rather stagnant and pleasant vapours emanated by marshes and so on. You can see why that was so easy to believe. And so, and they thought disease in crude terms was due to these impurities entering the blood and so on. And that the best way of ridding the soldiers of these diseases was to sort of purge them, you know, was to, uh, and, and really to induce vomiting diarrhea and excess salivation and sweating and poor cold water over them and to give them toxic drugs like mercury and so on. So a lot of the treatment, as you imply, was actually harmful, only likely to you know, cause the soldier further indignity and shorten their life. But there were some treatments that might have been effective. Peruvian bark was used, uh, which had some efficacy in, mal in malaria, um, still used today, quinine, the derivative. Um, and things like opium would have given, you know, some may have helped in diarrhea and given some analgesic effects. Some of the things like, you know, cool baths and changes in diet were probably not harmful. But the whole regime, which often tracks the term antiphlogistic, was in the, in the majority of cases um, uh, pretty, pretty unhelpful. And one of the things that Napoleon and Wellington have in common is they were both quite skeptical of, of contemporary medical treatments, and they were both in retrospect, entirely correct. Do you see a divide in terms of what the officer will receive in terms of treatment and what the rank and file get? I.e., you know, does Wellington have a better chance, and I presume the answer here is yes, of getting access to, say, Peruvian bark compared to your ordinary member of the rank and file for whom they haven't got the money to pay yeah. for such That's medical true. supplies? That's true. I mean, it's arguable whether getting more of this treatment was a good thing. Though. That's true, yes. <laughs> Maybe the more you qualified for, the more that you were likely to die. Um, I, I think that, that there is some evidence of, of lower mortality rates in offices. It's been a bit sketchy. Um, the data is, as you might expect, not complete. I, I suspect it may have been in some cases that 
the, the, actually the medical treatment, like you say, it may have been an officer was killed in malaria because he got bark and, a, and, a, and, a, and an ordinary soldier wouldn't have done. I suspect that the, 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 the better survivals in, in, in offices where they existed was just officers were uh, better nourished. They didn't come from the lower end of society. You have to think how, you know, where the average British soldier came from, the average European soldier who went to India, fought in the peninsula at Waterloo, they work in the lower realms of society. Disease was rife, malnutrition was, was, was rife. So their chances of surviving disease were reduced by the fact that many of them were, were in a fairly feeble state to start with. Um, and also their accommodation, there were differences there. You know, uh, ordinary soldiers were more likely to contract diseases because, you know, such as typhus, for instance, which wasn't a massive issue in India, but it certainly was in, in, in the Europe and the peninsula. Um, you know, you were more likely to contract these diseases if you were ran together in some barracks than if you were in officer's accommodation. So there were differences. There were, were differences. But I, I don't think they were profound. I think that original figure I quoted about, you know, disease losses in, 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 in soldiers who were promoted to lieutenant colonel makes the point that nobody was immune from these diseases. Now, we can't discuss Wellesley in India without considering a sigh for pretty obvious reasons. Yeah. Now, before my listeners um, start to worry, I know we covered a sigh when I spoke to Josh Proven about his book on the Marsha and Jack campaigns. However, we're not gonna spend another hour talking about a sigh, folks, don't worry, but I am interested in your perspectives. How prepared was he? And, and you've tapped into this slightly at the start, which is why I really want to drill in, down into it now. How prepared was he for the job of commanding when he received that independent command against the Marathas? Yeah, I, I think he wasn't. He wasn't. Uh, I think he, he had had some experience of warfare and independent command in India. Um, in 1799, uh, I'm just reminding myself of dates in June and September, um, he had an independent command against uh, an uncle Doondia War, uh, who's a sort of had all the pejorative terms thrown at him that the, 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 the British used for their, their, their enemies in India, like freebooter, bandit, and so on. I think now we probably regard him as a guerrilla leader. And so I think, you know, the Dundia War campaign, in some ways, was good preparation for, for Wellesley for, for, the, for the, uh, the height of the Anglo Maratha War, which four years later in 1803, um, to chase this man endlessly. Through uh, inhospitable terrain, tried to catch him. He'd been his his sort of mission, if you like, was to hang this freebooter Dundia from the from the nearest tree in inverted commas. And he caught him in the end, and he he won the skirmish, uh, and uh, Dundia War was killed. And I think most historians have regarded that as a formative campaign for, for Wellesley, which did prepare him for campaigning in India. Um, he learned to form alliances with, with, with local chiefs. Um, he was already uh, showing, inverted commas, the unremitting aggression, keen eye to look for logistics that would underpin his future campaigns in India. But I think what, what that campaign lacked was a major battle. And I think, therefore, I think Wellesley was prepared for the campaign, if that makes sense, I think he, he got on board a lot of the skills he needed to, to, to march quickly, uh, to, to, to catch his opponent by surprise, as I say, he was an intelligence failure on both sides. So I, I think he was in a position to bring his, his army to a say in a competent way, but I'm not sure he was prepared for the battle. You, may, you might argue, how could he be? You know, 
uh, Dominica War was not the Maratha Federation. Um, I think, you know, in passing, I think Wellesley was, was profoundly fortunate that there wasn't a great Maratha general. I think a point actually, incidentally, in discussions of Asaya, I think is sometimes overlooked. There wasn't a great Maratha general. What would have happened if there had been? Would it have been very different? So, and I think, I think he did take a big risk at Asaya. You know, we touched upon that. His intelligence was poor. He underestimated the, the ability of the Maratha army to, to, to um, uh, maneuver in the field of battle. He, he underestimated the quality of the Maratha artillery and infantry. And, you know, to, to, to having incurred criticism, the only reason he won the battle, because he, he was brilliant on the field. He showed enormous bravery. He made the right tactical decision. He solved problems in real time. And none of that was happening on the Maratha side. And his, his, his officer class showed superior qualities to the Maratha officer class, whose loyalty was perhaps a little to Scindia, was a little tenuous, Scindia being the Maratha chief. So I think he won the battle in real time, but the way he approached it, he could easily have lost it. So I don't think he was very prepared, but perhaps ultimately you can only prepare for battle by fighting one, can't you? Um, and, and I say it was a completely unprecedented event for him, and indeed all, all, all the European and, and East India Company forces involved. So do you see a change in how he approaches bringing an enemy to battle subsequently? So I'm thinking here of Arguam, where there's not a, a huge battle, certainly nothing on, on the scale of, of a site, but there is nonetheless a, a conflict. Do you see him approaching that a little bit differently because he's been brought up short by what happens at a sign kind of goes, well, actually, that didn't go quite how I intended? Yeah, I, I think there is a change in tone in his dispatches. His um, subordinate um, in, the, in the Asai campaign, although the force of the split was Colonel Stevenson, who well, as he sends a lot of instruction. Um, and when, when, when you read the dispatches, in a, in a month leading up to the same, he, he's you know almost re relentlessly encouraging um, Stevenson to be aggressive, to dash at the end, uh, to be on the front foot, to be aggressive, and that which is you know you can argue that let's say um, Wellesley was just true to his own philosophy. I, I think if you read the contemporary accounts of Wellesley after a say, this was not a victorious, confident general you know, uh, celebrating a victory. This was a man with a head in his hands. He was shocked, I think. He couldn't quite believe the risk he'd taken himself. Uh, I'm reading that into it. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but certainly the accounts were that he was mortified by the losses that he'd suffered. And I think, you know, and shocked by how close he'd come to failure. But also, all of a sudden, there is a slight change in the tone of his dispatches after a say to Stevenson. He's suddenly a little bit more cautious. He's much more... So, so, no, he's much more um, careful about advising um, Stevenson to engage the enemy. It has to be under certain circumstances. And I think Argoam, he does initially hesitate, doesn't he? He gets to the, the local village, he goes up the, the, the watchtower, he sees the, the, the Bonsley's forces on the plains of Argoam, and he does initially hesitate. I think so. Is that a say in his head? Is, it, is that still playing on his mind? But then he goes, and 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 it, and it was a much weaker army. Bunsen's army was not the quality of a say. So it wasn't an exactly, you know, it wasn't in some ways a comparable 
um, situation, Argaian was always going to be battered. You would expect a disciplined East India Company army to win, whereas the same was much more of a, of a level playing field. So, yes, I think he was more comfortable, more cautious. You know, whether he then took that caution, you know, beyond India, I mean, some have suggested that the, the lesson he learned at say was carried not just through to Argaian and, and so on, uh, but right into his European campaigns. So I think that's much more contention. I'm also interested in what you see in terms of Wellesley's start to the quality of the East India Company troops, who I've discussed with a few folks in the past, were a fundamental element of British control in India and are quite often downplayed uh, in terms of their importance. Do the EIC sepoys meet with Wellington's approval or are they a bit like his allies in other campaigns? So is there sort of a comparison perhaps to be drawn with Spanish troops, where it's better to have them with you, but they do need to be carefully managed in terms of their exposure? Or is he as willing to strike with EIC sepoys as he is with British regular army forces? I think his opinion changed. Uh, I think uh, when he first um, went to India, I think he had a relatively low opinion of the sepoys, accepting that it was a complex situation. Sepoys were drawn from numerous areas of India. And there was a sort of um, there was a pecking order in, in British minds as to the, the competence of soldiers who came from various parts of India. So I think you know there was also that acceptance. You probably couldn't generalise uh, too much. But it, 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 in general terms, I think when he first went to India, he did have a you know he felt that the sepoys were well short of the competence of his European uh, troops. Um, I think. Um, there are a number of comments that there's one here. At the end of 1801, he, he's, he was recorded as saying, I wish I had a few more English troops and fewer natives. I don't imagine that the latter are very active in the jungle. So at 1801, he, he was seeing a real distinction, wasn't he? And then after a say, a, a, a comment that I always think is quite interesting because it's sort of a bit double-edged. He says the sepoys astonish me. They behaved admirably. And I always think, going back to Asai for a second, if the sepoys astonished him and he only just won the battle, again, it makes you feel this wasn't a battle for which he was very prepared. This was a battle he only won by the skin of his teeth, but with troops that fought a lot better than he expected. So it begs the question, what would have happened if, say, the sepoys had acted, you know, they were the bulk of the troops, there were some European regiments, of course. Um, I think both Lake and... Um, uh, Wellesley ultimately held the same, same opinion. I'm going to quote Anthony Lake. This is in October 1803. This is between the battles of Delhi and Lasbury. And Lake says, The sepoys have behaved excessively well, but from my observation this day, as well as on, on every other, it is impossible to do great things in a gallant and quick style without Europeans. So I think Wellesley and Lake ended up in the same place. I think they valued their sepoy troops. They knew they were competent. Uh, they did trust them. Um, but ultimately, I think they needed European troops and officers to stiffen their armies. And it's notable whenever there was a real, you know, um, a fall on hope or, or, or a particular uh, part of the battle where, where they felt the conflict was going to be intense, they tended to rely on the European troops. Sure. Um, I'm also interested in another topic that we kind of touched on over the, the course of this interview, which is, Wellington's brother, Earl Mornington, 
is his brother being out there a, a hindrance as much as it is a help? Because obviously it helps him in terms of getting the opportunities that he wants. But at the same time, having your older brother sort of almost breathing down your neck, expecting this unswerving loyalty can produce its own problems. So what are your thoughts on Mornington's influence on Wellesley during this period? Yeah, I mean, I think Mornington, Richard Wellesley, rather sort of a happy character. He's brilliantly described by Pendrel Moon in his voluminous history of India as being both brilliant and dyspeptic. You know, he, 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 he was a major player in the aggrandizement of the East India Company and the Crown ultimately the British Empire. Um, but he, he wasn't a popular figure. Even when he returned from India, he wasn't given much credit for, for, for what he had achieved. I think many people felt he was very underhand and almost malicious diplomatic means to achieve his goals. He had a very um, um, low opinion, I think, of India and the Indian population. Whereas his younger brother, Arthur, I think actually proved to like India and to like the Indian people. So they were apart. I think they weren't close, particularly after their first couple of years in India. Whether it was help or a hindrance, I ultimately have to say it's probably a help. Um, well, as the, you know, it's an example who had you know, a lot of nepotism in his favour, a lot of money spent on him, um, you know, who benefited from his aristocratic background, but then he, he justified it in spades, didn't he? It just so happened he was also a very talented, the right man for the job. And I think that's how Richard Wellesley uh, viewed his younger brother. Um, they weren't close, I think, as Wellesley, uh, Arthur uh, Wellesley, uh, had the temerity to criticise some of Mornington's um, Indian strategies. I think he, got, he thought he got it wrong. And he said so. Um, but I think to, to give credit to Richard Wellesley, uh, the Governor General, I, I think he was quite pragmatic. He could have fallen out with his, his younger brother and it could have ended up with a family tip and actually, you know, Wellington being demoted, if you like. Um, but I think Wellesley understood that, you know, uh, sorry, it's always going to get confusing, wasn't it? Richard Wellesley understood that his younger brother uh, was actually very talented and was one of the few men in India who had the political and military acumen to, to actually take right decisions in an autonomous fashion, you know. And I think, you know, Richard Wellesley, you know, he's very polite to his younger brother. After a say, he said, well, well done, but try and avoid quite so many casualties next time. You know, it was that sort of relationship. Is that partly because of the pressures that Mornington is under? Because he needs people who can do a good job. He's got London, albeit from afar, and as you say, you know, it's four months yeah. to send a letter and then another four months to get that reply. Uh, so he's he's got this almost sort of mini fiefdom. Well, it's not even a mini fiefdom, is it? Think about the scale yeah. of British occupation in India. He's got to effectively rule and he needs to make the most of the talent that he's got on the ground. So he can't afford to fall out with somebody who, if nothing else, you've got to create the appearance that you know, the Wellesley brothers are, are a unified front and, and that kind of bolsters Mornington and, and his reputation out there as much as it does Arthur and, and his burgeoning career. No, I agree. I think they had their local difficulties, but their, their ultimate objectives were, were the same. I mean, I think both men were, were very, very ambitious. Um, I think, well, uh, to be fair to Richard first, I think it was fiendishly difficult to be Governor General of India. The, polit the, the politics were never in fine because you really tried to satisfy the East Indian Company directors and 
senior officials, but also keep the, um, keep the government in London happy. And the government in London had a, you know, strike a policy of non, non-aggression in India at this time, which somewhat at odds with what happened. So I think, you know, to some extent, Richard Wellesley was, was playing his own game. And I think that the government in India, sorry, the government in London obviously would cast a blind eye with this. Anything that was bad for the French must be good in some way. Um, so I, I think, you know, it was very, very difficult for the government, the Governor General of India, uh, to remain popular. Uh, Richard Wellesley didn't help himself. He appears an even more aloof, aristocratic and difficult character than his younger brother, you know. I mean, if we say, well, as going back to his character, if we say that Arthur wasn't a difficult individual, then it was certainly, it appears to have been an inherited trait to some extent. But yes, you're right. I think ultimately they were on the same side, and I think their relationship probably ended up more pragmatic and friendly. And to finish us off then, and we've touched on this at various points across the interview, but I, I want to kind of bring it all together and kind of tie it up in, into one um, thing at the end. Wellington's time in India, what kind of an influence does that have, would you say, on his style of command much later in his career? Yeah, I mean, in my book, I just did a bit, I get myself off the hook quite brilliantly with this because I say a meaningful assessment of the contribution of Wellesley's Indian experience in his later campaigns of political life would require a more wide ranging and comparative study. This has been attempted in this book. So that's pretty slick. <laughs> Smoothly done. <laughs> Smoothly done. But it's true, isn't it? I felt yes. I couldn't have a deep conversation because I hadn't, you know, if you're going to make these sort of comparisons, then you can't just study India. I feel I've studied India enough to have an opinion. You then have to study the peninsula. You then have to study the low countries. And you have to do them in even Flanders, I guess, before India, and then make the comparison. So what I do in my book, um, in, in, in the epilogue, which is called More of the Oak Than the Willow, that was how Wellesley described one of his office, but, but I think actually it fits rather well for him. Um, I quote a number of historians, um, some of them very recent, some a little bit uh, more in the, in the past, for, for, for their opinions. And actually what's, what's interesting is not exactly what they conclude, but how different they are. And, and the different facets of Wellesley's experience in India that they, that they, they tend to emphasize. Um, Anthony Bunnell, um, who, who writes a very political account of the, of the um, Anglo-Maratha War, you know, not surprisingly emphasises the political acumen that, that Wellesley gains in India. This was a man who could sort of uh, negotiate with the Nabobs. He, he, he was, you know, if you could, uh, if you could engineer your way or maneuver your way through Indian politics, then European politics, you know, were, were going to be quite accessible. So, you know, we must remember as a politician, he probably gained a great deal of skill in, in, in India. Some people see tactical motifs that were repeated, asking his troops to, to, to lie on the field and this sort of thing, which is recurrent in his later um, battles, such as Waterloo. Perhaps that's a simplistic comparison, but people do see tactical similarities. I mean, I think it's quite interesting to compare Hugh um, Davis and uh, Rory Muir because, they, you know, um, they come from a slightly different angle. Actually, they reach quite different opinions, which I think is, is interesting, isn't it? Hugh Davis, um, I hope you just mind me quoting from his book, which is really interesting. Uh, rather than a flowering military genius, the Wellesley of the Deccan campaign was manifesting incompetence in the organisation of his intelligence camp 
collection, excuse me, and arrogant to the point of imbecility in the analysis of that intelligence. So he's really hard on, on Wellesley in India. But he says he learned his lessons. That was the crucial thing. He made big mistakes in India, um, but he learned his lessons. He, he took everything he could out of it. And Wellesley himself, um, you know, said that most of his, he told Lord Stanhope, that much of his understanding of military matters, perhaps all of it, was gained by the time that he left India. Rory Muir takes a more um, you know, formative view of Wellesley's time in India, um, saying that he'd, he'd learned to command an army on campaign and in battle. So I think it's interesting. I think, you know, even modern historians can't, you know, did he make a mess of India and did he learn from his mistakes or was it much more a con continuous formative experience where, you know, the peninsula and so on was just a continuation? Um, because, of course, you know, he was a very aggressive general in India, uh, uh, but he only sporadically showed that aggression in later campaigns, I think that's fair to say. That's a really interesting point to end on. Martin, thank you so much for this. I absolutely loved it. I knew I would. Um, folks, Wellington and the British Army's India Campaign, 1798 to 1805, is available at Pen and Sword Books. Remember, if you're one of the Patreon supporters for the Napoleon Assist, you can get 10% off, so be sure to use that discount code so that it rolls over, otherwise they'll um, expire it. But Martin, this has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so, so much for joining me. And do come back, because I really want to talk to you about that West Indies book as well. Okay, no, thanks for inviting me, Zach. Much appreciated. If you've been inspired to read further into the ideas raised in this episode, don't rush off to Amazon. I have an alternative suggestion. Why not support independent bookstores and your boy producing this podcast by buying them via the Napoleon Assist bookshop? Click the link in the description and you'll find a vast range of titles that will be of interest, all arranged by theme, and in the process, independent booksellers get a cut and the Napoleon Assist gets a cut, so there are many who benefit. Do remember to leave a like and review, and as you know I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those who don't want to make a regular contribution, but do want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist on Ko-fi, the link is in the description, and know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of the tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going through their subscriptions. There are some exclusive perks, including discount codes for pen and sword, voting rights, and even bespoke one-to-ones with me. So be sure to check out the link in the description for more details. A particular thanks to my Emperor-level patron, Mark Staus, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice de Graff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. I will be back in just a few days' time as Wellington Month continues to ramp up as it reaches its climax. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.